And each of those, of course, has many different tentacles in them. So uh, in one sense, you know, in six weeks of two hours classes, that would be 12 hours and by my calculations. We, we can't cover all that could possibly be covered. So that's why I kind of depend on you to call on me to, for what, what you want. I will say that my thinking from the beginning of this work, which, you know, I first published a book on this topic 10 years ago in, in, in 2004. Uh, for me, that's hard to believe. My daughter was six. So we won't talk about that because I saw her kissing a boy last night. Oh, God, we just <laughs> recorded that. Jeez. Okay. She doesn't listen to this, fortunately. So maybe someday. So, or maybe, maybe that's not good. Okay. Where was I? So when I you know, first published One Breath at a Time, I had the idea that, first of all, I wanted to help people who struggled uh, with uh, the 12 steps, particularly the kind of I guess I would say Christian tone and, and somewhat archaic language of them. I wanted to help them to understand the 12 steps in what I see as kind of a more practical and just contemporary way of understanding them. And of course, using Buddhism as the lens for that. Um, partly because, of, I mean, obviously, first of all, because that's my practice, that's my understanding, that's something I've studied for many decades, several decades. And also because obviously Buddhism has a distinctly different language and, uh, and of course there's no God in Buddhism. There are gods actually in the traditional texts, but we don't have to go there. Um, and so I, I wanted to kind of help people in that way to kind of find the 12 steps to be more accessible. I also was very aware from attending a lot of meetings that uh, m very few people seem to be able to practice the meditation part of step 11. Uh, people talked about it a lot more than they did it. And so I felt that I had something to offer there. Um, there's another piece, and this is tied into both those things, is the sense that um, people who, are, who get engaged in recovery sometimes go through uh, quite a few years just kind of coasting on uh, uh, acting as if with their spiritual practice and sometimes hit a wall at a certain point, I'd say typically between five and ten years, sometimes further on, uh, where the kind of act as if or, all right, I'm going to suspend disbelief, just stops working for them, and they kind of uh, find that uh, they don't, they kind of lose touch with the spiritual, with the spiritual meaning or connection to their program, and... Um, and that's, in some ways, that's like the, that's who I really wanted to talk to, I guess, in my work. Uh, and uh, I have found over the years that there are a lot of newcomers who come to this. Uh, and and part, uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. I don't, don't need to understand. One of them is simply that newcomers are people who go to bookstores looking for books on recovery. And old-timers don't do that. 
because they already know everything, right? So, um, so the newcomers are the ones who discover my books, and then they tell their sponsors about them, which is a, something I've heard many times. I'm always pleased. Anyway, somebody can find my books. So all that said, over the course of these weeks, I will be taking you through various meditation practices. We'll sit and we'll meditate together each week. I will be recommending that you practice at home, as I suggest on the homework. Um, and we'll, we'll engage in the steps uh, to talk about them uh, through this Buddhist lens and see uh, how that... Uh, how that resonates for you, and um, and I'm trying to really integrate more kind of exercises where people interact with each other. So it's not just about sitting here and you know drinking in my wisdom, uh, <laughs> which can start to not taste very good after a while, kind of stale maybe. Um, you know, one of the keys to recovery is connecting with people. And one of the symptoms of addiction is isolation. So, um, so this is an opportunity to connect with people who might be like-minded in some sense. Uh, so, that seems like enough introduction for now. Um, and so, in a moment, we can do some meditation. Um, but just uh, want to see if there are any questions about what I've said and kind of about how I'm structuring the class. And I, I, maybe I've sort of overlooked talking about something obvious. So if there's some, some obvious question or not obvious question or anything that's concerning you, happy to address it. And if there's something that you feel like, oh, well, I thought I was going to be doing this, you know, that, that comes up, you can always raise your hand or you can come to me during a break. And, um, you can also contact me by email. I actually didn't put my email address on here, but I usually do. And my website is kevingriffin.net and you just click on contact and there I am. So, nothing? Okay. Well, there will be many more opportunities to ask questions. And, and I will say that um, even though I might say the same things, or teach the same things, if I can call it teaching, uh, if I'm just lecturing, somehow there's a different feeling when it comes as a question. and We're exploring something and it feels like we're doing that together. So, uh, so I like to be asked questions. Yes? This is kind of more of a comment or, um, about what I'm, why I'm here, and that is that um, I've been sober for 32 years and then I was doing meditation class last fall, and then I drank in January, and um, uh, I went back to AA, and I was like, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to accept and love myself no matter what I'm like, right? right. But then all of a sudden I have all these defects of character, uh-huh. and I was just having a lot of trouble reconciling, you know, the way the program kind of wants you to look at yourself. And right. that's why I wanted to come here to see if if we would be more kind and compassionate to you. Yes. <laughs> yes. To be like effective. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, thank you, and that's a perfect example of the type of language and concepts that I, that I think we can address here and that I do, that I do like to address. So absolutely, um, I, I think that, uh, in fact, I'm working on, at least I'm supposed to be working on, an- another book, which I'm kind of becoming a book factory lately. Uh, which is really, which is called Recovering Joy, and it's uh, a mindful life after addiction, and it's about, yeah, trying to find the bright side of recovery, the positive side, the up, the happiness in recovery that that we are promised in some of the literature, but then sometimes seems to get lost in the the trudging, you know, and the and the defects and the inventories and the in the confession and and the kind of it's almost like it's bad luck to be happy or something because something bad will happen or I don't know. So, so yeah, I think that's, it's really important to, to at least find different language and then fr- to move from that into uh, some different understandings. Uh, and, and my view isn't that I shouldn't think about my failings or if you, you know, what's called defective character but rather that there needs to be a balance because to me inventory is about honesty and honestly i'm not all bad you know and and if if that's how i'm depicting myself and feel like i have to uh talk about myself then that's what i'm creating you know and that's what i'm creating in my mind and my emotional states um yeah, uh, that, and, and I think it's, it's inaccurate. And, uh, you know, honesty is, to me, a core element of recovery. And honestly, I have good qualities and I have not-so-good qualities, and, and they're, they're all part of the mix. So, thank you. All right, well, let's, let's do a little meditation. We'll, uh, ordinarily, I'll be doing about a 30-minute sitting tonight. We're going to just do about 20 to get you guys started. Some of you are old hands at this. I recognize some of you, so you, you uh, I mean, of course I recognize you. you. <laughs> Do, have I seen you somewhere? But uh, nonetheless, we're going to take this as a, uh, people want to get some, yeah, you're, you're more than welcome to sit on Zafus in here. Ordinarily, this red line is meant to be the path, the path to the, for, pe- for people to get in and out, so we try not to, s- you know, block it, but uh, it's like a TV commercial that's reminding me of, but anyway, that's bad. All righty. I'm uh, having the desire to talk about the role of meditation in this process, but I'm going to, I'm just saying it out loud so that I'll try to remember to talk about that in some context here. I don't want to interrupt us now because we're kind of moving into that space. Settling into your posture, 
whether you're in a chair or on the floor on a cushion or bench. You can gently close your eyes or if you prefer, you can just lower your gaze so that the visual field uh, comes out of your attention. Uh, The way we sit is actually a very important aspect of practice. We want to sit in a way that we can stay alert. The spine is relatively straight, but we don't want to be tense or rigid, so softening. The beginning of meditation is becoming engaged with the body. It's so easy for us to live just from the neck up. And we can lose touch with our physical selves. So just check in with the different parts of your body right now. Feel your hands. Notice that there are sensations in your hands. Can you feel those? Feel your feet. If you can relax any tension in your face, so let your jaw be loose. Notice if your eyes are squinting or your forehead is furrowed, just soften and release. Move your attention down to your belly and soften your belly. It's another place we hold a lot of tension. You might take a deep breath and let the belly expand.
And now start to feel your body breathing. First, just noticing that whole process. How air comes in, travels down the throat to the lungs. As the air comes into the body, the chest and belly expand and rise. And the chest and belly collapse and the air goes back out. Really quite a lot of the body is directly engaged and directly affected by the breath. Actually our back expands as we breathe, expands and contracts. The shoulders might slightly move with the breath, the chest. Now we're just connecting with this basic function of life, breathing. something we don't usually pay attention to. And in order to develop a more focused attention, start to Pay attention to just a single point in the breath, either right at the tip of the nose, so you're feeling the air as it touches the nose and then as it leaves, in and out. Or if the sensations aren't clear enough there or it's not comfortable, Try paying attention to just the movement of your belly, rising and falling with each breath. To help the attention stay with the breath, can make a soft mental note. You're following the breath at the 
nostrils, just saying silently, in, out, as you breathe in and out. Following the breath at the belly, you might say rising, falling with the movement. The words connect with the actual sensations and it can help you to stay with the breath. It's natural for the mind to wander as we try to pay attention to the breath. We lapse into thoughts. And this is part of the process. When you notice the mind has wandered, acknowledge that and then gently come back to the breath. each time re-engaging with the sensations and the words. You know, mindfulness meditation doesn't exclude anything from our practice. So if your attention gets drawn to a sound or a sensation, again, just something to acknowledge and to return, coming back to the breath as your touchstone.
as we sit, we start to see one of the truths of our mind, which is that fundamentally we're not in control of our own minds. We can we could say that we are powerless over our thoughts or the arising of thoughts, powerless over feelings, powerless over our senses, which keep engaging, keep keep experiencing, even when we might not want them to. This is, in a sense, the first step of meditation, surrendering to our powerlessness. This doesn't mean that we can't engage or make an effort to change. But certainly, if we are not aware, if we are not mindful, we have no power. We are just swept along. So when we wake up and have a moment of awareness, then we're able to make a choice.
Okay, so um, the foundation of Buddhist practice is mi- mindfulness, and even the, this term uh, is being uh, and, um, really sort of explored a lot uh, in the last few years in Buddhist circles to try to really clarify what, what it means. Uh, and it's quite, it's quite uh, somewhat complex and subtle, and, and so uh, not even sure I can do justice uh, briefly talking about it. But certainly the starting point is just awareness of starting to see what's going on in our minds, what's going on in our bodies, being present rather than just being on an automatic pilot. Um, Noticing particularly how we react to our lives, in our lives, to our thoughts, to our feelings, to other people, to situations, and starting to uh, interrupt our habitual ways of reacting to the world, our our habitual ways of viewing the world, uh, to question our beliefs, this whole range. Uh, of um, really approaches to um, to our lives to to really watch start to watch who we are kind of and how we how we are um, and it's very challenging and much like the twelve step process there's this kind of uh, having to face up to some things that we might not be that uh, <coughs> excited about looking at. Uh, so that, but this kind of engagement is, is what we take on because we see that in order to really have meaningful and fulfilling lives, we have to get to these, uh, answer these questions, uh, who we are and what, how we are being, how we are engaging in the world, and, and become more conscious so that we are making intentional choices based on our true values and our true wishes. And so obviously addiction is, a, is a, an activity that involves not making choices, not making conscious choices, making habitual reactive choices that are not at all based on our true intentions, our true values. Uh, it's, it's just being driven by compulsion. And the, what we see, and in, in this is in the, in, in the, the larger, te- the, the Buddhist teachings are really pointing to this, that not just addicts are driven in this way, that all humans are driven by these impulses. It's just that addicts kind of maybe take it a little further, take it a little further out and get into more trouble. And, and maybe that gives us an opportunity that, that someone who's able to kind of get, get by uh, doesn't have because we're forced to engage in some kind of a process we call recovery or spiritual life. But that that forces us to deal with this stuff and then gives us an opportunity to go deeper uh, into our own hearts, into our own minds, and to understand ourselves further and to cultivate 
this particularly this quality of awareness of, of being awake that really opens us uh, in many ways. Uh, the, these days, a lot of the teachers, the kind of spirit rock teachers or the Vipassana teachers, are really not even separating the idea of compassion and loving kindness from the idea of mindfulness. There's sort of an understanding that as we open our awareness, that there is also this connection that starts to happen, that our hearts open along with our minds, that they're not two separate things happening. That's one of the reasons why I don't practice, or not, uh, why I don't emphasize the particular loving-kindness practices as something separate from mindfulness in my teachings. I really just feel that if you really engage in mindfulness, that that loving-kindness comes along with it quite naturally. Um, So I guess that's a little bit about what I think, uh, you know, why we're we're doing meditation as part of this uh, recovery process. So I want to just open it up now for any questions about meditation. Uh, And I assume that some of you are new to meditation and some of you I know have been around for a while, so... Uh, any kind of question, anything that you found challenging or confusing or uh, you're not understanding or you're having difficulty with, uh, please. Uh, if you are experiencing it, other people are as well, so you're uh, doing them a favor by asking so that they don't have to. Yes? Are there physical exercises to kind of get you, I mean, like I was just kind of focusing on my back so much because I was just like not comfortable in the position. Are there mm. like physical exercises you can do to kind of strengthen areas? There's this thing called yoga. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which actually, uh, it seems that yoga was actually, the yoga exercises, the asanas, seem to have been developed in order to make it easier for people to uh, you know, sit in stable meditation postures for long periods of time. So going back to the earliest, so we can kind of assume that the Buddha um, did some practices, although there's, I've never seen any references to that in the traditional teachings, but uh, so Karen Armstrong's biography of the Buddha uh, makes that claim, and it's certainly a sensible one. So yeah, I mean, we, first of all, sitting still in any posture after a certain period of time, or after some period of time, will become uncomfortable. And this is why even when you're in the most comfortable bed, you move around in your sleep, right? Even when you're asleep, you move around, right? Um, So one of the challenges, uh, some of the work in meditation, is to work with discomfort in the body. To not to think, oh, once I can get really comfortable, then I can meditate. Uh, learning to be with uncomfortable sensations is a really, really good practice, particularly for people who don't like to feel uncomfortable and who try to fix it every time they feel mildly uncomfortable. As if that sounds familiar to anybody here as a behavior. So there's a whole section of this book um, on working with pain, and it's in the... Ch- uh, 
not sure what chapter it's in. I think it's in step, it's in either step six or step seven, I think. Uh, it's something I wrote some years ago and finally found a place to publish it. Um, working with pain. It's uh, effort and the Dharma of pain. It's in step seven. So I, I really recommend reading it because it's quite extensive, the thinking behind it. Uh, there's, there's actually tremendous value in working with pain. It's not just like, oh, I have to sit through this because I'm trying to be a good meditator, or once I get through this, then I'll enjoy myself. Not at all. It's very powerful practice in many ways. So, so and, and uh, I will just say that sitting still is an important part of meditation practice as well. Uh, if we are kind of shifting or scratching or kind of just those little diddly things that we do, Joseph Goldstein describes it as like taking the kettle off the flame over and over. The water never boils. So stillness is one of the supporting conditions for the arising of concentration. Uh, and so that's another reason to do it, uh, to try to really work with that. So the, the basic instruction is, if you start to feel uncomfortable, try to relax your body and take your attention to the place that feels uncomfortable and see if you can just be with that. And notice what happens there. Notice that the mind resists and the body tenses, but if you can let go of the mental resistance and relax the tension in the body, that there can be a big shift. And, and so we, we see that we don't have to be so much uh, the victim of discomfort. It's like, oh, because um, uh, once again, it's like we get... We get um, programmed, you know, we got in this, this automatic pilot, oh, I feel uncomfortable, I have to fix it, I have to change, I have to move. Like, and, and we're, so we're, we don't have a choice there. Uh, again, very much in that addictive way. So when we bring awareness into it, we have a choice. Now that doesn't mean, oh, you know, you're in agony, you shouldn't move. You know, you, if you get to a point where you're, it's not manageable, then you very intentionally change your posture and then you come back to stillness. So when you move, you're mindful of your movement, and then you come back to stillness. And that way, yeah, you might interrupt your concentration once in a 20-minute sitting or twice in a half hour, whatever. I'm not going to give, you know, I don't want to imply that's what it should be. But, you know, a couple times there might be some interruption. But it's not like when you're sitting and you're kind of like... You know, and, and this room and this floor and these chairs, you know, kind of amplify all the movements. So uh, you get you kind of get busted every time you move. In here. <laughs> it's unfortunate, you know. So, yeah, you had your hand up, Olga. Uh, kind of related to the to what you're talking about, um, you know, with with compulsive behavior, even if it's you know since childhood or any kind of compulsive. Uh, behavior, um, it can become, uh, you can become so habituated to it, like uh, addiction and, um, and craving, and at, at times cravings can become meshed with, enmeshed with, with, um, you know, physical dependence uh, and, um, you know, desperation. 
Is meditation on its own something that's capable of, of derailing an intense craving? Um, hmm. <laughs> I'm partly considering whether I want to directly try to answer that question, uh, and partly thinking about what I will say if I do try to answer it. I, uh, You know, if you're really good at meditating and you do it a whole lot, like the people that are up the hill right now that are sitting for two months in silent, you know, in a silent retreat, um, you can do a hell of a lot of stuff, you know. But it's not a drug, you know. So if you're not meditating... (laughs) At the time when the compulsion comes up, you know, it's kind of like, oh, is the medit? Did you do enough meditation this morning so that the compulsion doesn't happen? I mean, it's, uh, you know, I guess uh, my larger answer is why depend on just meditation? That's why there's a program and. Buddhism is not just meditation, <laughs> you know, that's one, mindfulness is one, uh, one piece of the teachings. You know, the Eightfold Path, which is really the, the basic practice, the, it's kind of the steps of Buddhism, that's, it's quite extensive, you know, it involves, uh, you know, the way we live, the way we, not just the way we meditate, it involves our morality, it involves our speech, it involves our work, Involves our view of the world and our and our goals and our intentions. It's just, and all of that is part of of Buddhism. So uh, if you just try to take meditation out of Buddhism and use that as a fix for anything, I, I would say no. <laughs> Ultimately, it's not going to work. It might, you know, it's something that yeah, at one in one particular moment you might be able to meditate your way through that, but it's not a program. You know, we need more than that. Uh, I don't know if I answered, but <laughs> best I can do right now. Yes. There's a being new in meditation. There's a place in there that it feels like there's panic in my mind, like I'm trapped in a room. So when you're meditating, you have this experience, yes. yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering, how do I meditate? You know, stay yeah. in there without feeling trapped? So for, uh, the first thing I would suggest is that you meditate with your eyes open if you're having that kind of feeling. Um, Sometimes, first of all, many of us, and I didn't, you know, if you don't, if you don't know anything about me, I I should say that I am a recovering alcoholic and addict. And uh, many of us um, have experienced some kind of trauma or... And in fact, even if we didn't have like childhood trauma, I think some of the actual effects of of addiction can be traumatic in and of themselves. You know, I mean, thinking about 
like drinking to the point of unconsciousness, you know, blacking out. That's, that's a real jolt to the system. Or ODing on drugs. You know, these are things that may create kind of traumas within us. So maybe, maybe a lot of us have some kind of PTSD in a way. And, uh, and this is sort of conjecture, but it's talking about something that I think is real. And so one of the things that can happen in meditation is that things that are buried like that can start to bubble up. And they might not bubble up in any kind of conscious form, like, oh, I remember this, but just what you're describing, just like a feeling, a feeling of panic or a feeling of being trapped or like, whoa, this isn't safe. Um, You know, I had one student describe uh, being, that she was molested by her older brother when she was, a kid, you know, I'm not sure what age, but, you know, adolescence. And that when that was happening, she always closed her eyes to try to take her, get away from it, you know, to, to dissociate. And so that when she started to learn meditation, uh, panic, you know, she started to have this feeling, this flashback kind of feeling when, when the instructions were given to close your eyes. So that, that was, I was like, yeah. Open your eyes. And opening our eyes usually helps us to break out of that because our eyes are our strongest sense and they kind of really, we, we tend not to go into those uh, uh, you know, states as much like uh, this, um, because we kind of are more aware that, oh, I'm here. You know, I, I kind of realize that I'm here. That, so that's one thing. Um, and and right now I'm just talking about meditation, so there are other things, you know, that it might be pointing to other work that needs to be done that isn't maybe something that I'm going to help you with. But um, in terms of meditation, in those stages, I would also try to use the breath as a calming. So as your exhale, you know, really, in our basic mindfulness meditation is don't try to control the breath, just feel it. But we can also use the breath intentionally. And so when there are certain states, energetic or emotional states, we can intentionally use the breath. We can use the breath, the inhalation we can think of as the energizing breath, and then the exhalation is the calming breath. So when there's anxiety, to really focus on the exhalation and maybe lengthen the exhalation a little bit and let, the, let there be a sense of the exhalation like you're bre- breathing out the whole body. You know, that it, like, like your breath is like... And it's going out like your feet, your toes into the earth. So that's a way to kind of like, intentionally use the breath to bring some calming in those anxiety moments. So... Experiment. Be careful. Be kind to yourself. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I'm feeling that I'm innerly reacting to the answer you gave to that person, and uh-huh. um, I'm feeling uncomfortable with yeah. what you say because I really feel meditation is uh, is an amazing opening, uh-huh. and the way you answered to me, I received like a closing, a door. And, um, I'm, I'm Ex- explain uh, that to me a little bit more. I don't know if this person is new to meditation, but if he is, I, I, I receive your answer like not very encouraging with that meditation. 
And to me, I see how much meditation is, I said, an amazing door, <laughs> open door, that I felt a little bit um, bad with the Well, And just I want to finish. Yeah, sure. Just that for me, it's not only a release. Meditation is not only releasing stress or, or becoming more calm. It's also to see who is having the craving. It's really um, uh, an, uh, reversing the eye on, on who is doing that. And I think it's, it's okay, maybe at the beginning, as you said, uh, it, the, the craving can, may remain, but the, the most you will meditate, the most you will be aware of who is having this craving, and you will, uh, it will uh, disintegrate itself more, more, more and more, and it's not only to become calmer. Hmm. And I, sorry. No, you can say more. No, I don't know. I, I feel I don't know the purpose of the being here, but I feel it's also an energy of giving encouraging and giving. Okay, let's let's do something in order to to help and to move on. And and so I would like to encourage to meditate. Why am I certainly don't, I think it's pretty clear that I'm not discouraging anybody from meditating. What I'm saying <coughs> is that I do not believe, and in my experience, meditation is not a cure for addiction. That's the core statement, that's the core idea I'm trying to get across. And that sometimes craving can overpower the power of our meditation. Sometimes not. Sometimes meditation can be stronger. It's absolutely, I consider it a vital and underused tool in terms of recovery. And, and absolutely everything you're saying I think is quite true, that, that we can see through that, as you say, the, who is having the craving, and we can have those insights. But I have just seen people try to use meditation as a kind of fix, or as a kind of answer within itself, without engaging in the greater task at hand. And so I don't, and, and, and I, you know, I'm also, one of the things that makes me biased in that way is that I got into Buddhism and meditation long before I got sober. And I was able to stay in denial about my own addiction, even as I w thought I was a really serious meditator. So that, that's my, you know, that, that's where my bias is. I think if somebody is really sincere and really understands this process, that, that engaging in this way can be the core of their recovery process, yes. And, and indeed, I, you know, I see meditation, the, one of the things I like to connect is meditation as a way of actually working the 12 steps. So not just, oh, it's the 11th step you should pray and meditate, but that, in, as I said in the instructions tonight, we can see our powerlessness. It's kind of the first step is meditation, or that meditation kind of opens us to the, the first step in the 12 steps, the powerlessness over our minds, that there's this flow that we're not, uh, if we're not present for, we're not, uh, we have no power over. 
but, and that as we become aware, that can become our so-called higher power as well. So it really, I see meditation as really a key way of working the steps, absolutely. So I, I, the, the reason I took time in answering the question is because uh, it's, it really depends on where someone is coming from. And I will often, I might have asked you where you were coming from with that question. I think I set, I set us up by asking a, a closed-ended question, more or less. Yeah. You know, yes or no. Right, right. Is it, is it yeah, yeah. But I also know how uh, craving and compulsion and trauma especially can lead to more serious psychiatric uh, there is that. Act, like panic disorder yeah. and anxiety attacks. And I think that mm, some of us may have a lot more practice in habit- and uh, experience in recovering from those feelings with substances and yeah. or behavior than we do with meditation or Buddhism. Uh, It's not something most of us uh, grew up with, I would venture to say, and something that's not so ingrained. It's rather like a new new kettle of fish, a new book. Well, I think we've jumped into the deep end, which is nice. Um, and I want to give people uh, a few minutes to take a break. So let's let's just do that. Take a break, and we'll kind of move into some other things. I'll, we'll ring a bell in a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.